Good evening, everyone. <laughs> so good to be with you. I know others may be coming in. We said we would start a little bit earlier tonight because we do have so much to cover. But let's just start with prayer right now and commit our hearts and minds to the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible opportunity to delve into your word, to the book of Revelation, Lord, that we're so thankful that you, by the spirit of the living God, entrusted this to John to write, to bring to really all of us. But, Father, that's the same spirit of God who inspired those words. While John was on that island of Patmos, Lord, your spirit is here tonight. And I pray, Lord Jesus, I ask by the mercies of God, because there is so much that is here that you, Lord God, would, would reveal to us exactly what that word speaks of, an unveiling. Disclose to us, Father. Speak to us. Father, these are mysteries. These are truths, not hidden from us, but hidden for us. And we say tonight, Lord, we're hungry, and we want to delve deeper. We want to dig deeper. We need this treasure from your word. I pray that... Um, I would be hidden behind the cross, Lord, that you would be our teacher tonight. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Again, so much to cover, and we only have five weeks, and uh, we begin to do the math here. We covered one chapter last week, okay? We just began to look uh, just slightly into the seven churches in chapter two and three. But my goal tonight is to just give a very broad overview of chapters 2 and 3, uh, these messages, seven messages to seven churches. And that way, you'll have a framework that we can, we can, you can study this on your own. Um, I'm giving you some detailed notes. By the way, if you did not get the notes yet, please, you'll want to make sure you have them. All right? Pastor Jeff has some in hand. There are, what, two sets of notes that will... There so the pages, and they're going to be paginated all the way through in sequence. So you should have 1 through 30. should be in two packets, 1 through 30. I urge you to bring these with you from week to week. Okay, now, my goal is to um, hit highlights all the way through chapter 6, because knowing all that we still need to cover in the next three weeks, this is what we need to do. But allow me to take you to the end of chapter 1 once again. And I want us to read a certain verse of scripture that really is, it brings a framework to me. And I, I know that there is nothing coincidental here. The Lord uh, has, uh, has inspired all that is written here. He knows how our brains work as well as our hearts. And I believe that the Lord provided a basic outline for this book. And you have that in chapter, what we know is chapters. By the way, I think we all understand that when John wrote this, when he received this originally from the Holy Spirit, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions, okay? That came much, much later, uh, roughly about 900 years later before you began to see verses and chapters. You do have paragraphs, though, and a lot of times Bibles will divide these scripture verses into paragraphs and, and new themes of thought and so on. But I want to go to what we have as chapter 1 and verse 19. And you'll remember from last week, there was introductory material that was here. Um, that's all. And by the way, everything that you have in hand, we're going to have on the screen behind me here. All right? We'll move through that. I've got some other pictures that's going to be down here. But notes will be up on the screen. 
But last week we saw that after this introduction, this hymn of praise and, and, and the word from the Father that uh, these things are going to move quickly and, the, and Jesus is going to be, uh, every eye will see him in his revelation. That's not the rapture, by the way, but that's the second phase of his coming when every eye, when he, and we're coming back with him at the end of the tribulation. At that time, and this is what you see in chapter 1, and then we covered with some detail um, John's encounter with the voice. And we spoke about um, seeing the voice, that before you can receive the message, spoken message, you have to know who's speaking. And so he had an encounter with, and we looked at the appearance of the voice. And so this is Jesus, the glorified Lord. Now, at the end of that chapter, as John falls as a dead man in the presence, the glory magnificence of Jesus in his resurrected body. He says this as Jesus revives him in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19, and here's the basic outline. Write, therefore, John, this is what you need to write down, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That, to me, is a three-part outline for this revelation, what we know is the book of Revelation. You have just seen this this manifest glory of the risen king. Write that down. What is going on in the seven churches, and they are, they were historical churches. They were real churches. I'm going to show you a few pictures here, and I know this is not the largest screen, but everybody should be able to get a little bit of this. Um, And in the book, there are some pictures that I took while I was in these places of the seven churches. I think there's one photo from each of those places. But I want you to get this sense that these were real churches in real cities in that day. And it is just amazing the details that are there that come to life. So we're going to just work through maybe a couple of the churches so you get an understanding of that. But, um, but then he says, not just what, is, what you have seen, what is now, that's happening in the churches in that day, but what's, what will take place later? This is a good time to tell you that there are different approaches to reading and studying and understanding the book of Revelation. I go into some depth in the introduction of the, of the, uh, the book, Conquest and Glory, in the intro to this. I cover some of the different ways, and there are major differences in the way that people will approach the book of Revelation. Um, many, many church, and I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but there are many church divi- um, denominations and, and, and church um, faith traditions that would look at the book of Revelation and say, this is just past history. There's what's known as preterism, which means past in itself, the word. And all of this, they say, oh, this is just past history. All of this was just forecasting the, the end of Israel. Rome would come in and, and destroy Israel in, in, in uh, 70 AD. And this has no relevance to our life today. I don't buy that, okay? I think that there's great relevance to this book, especially when you compare Scripture with Scripture. Remember that I said that the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament, New Testament book. You've got 400 times that you could go back to the Old Testament and say, this is why John is making the connection. And one of the biggest things to me is that a major, major part of this revelation has to do with the resurrection of the dead. That has not happened yet. It has to do with the visible return of the Lord Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. So this is why I say this. 
when it says things that are yet to come, things that will take place later or metatautau, that's a phrase that you will, I'll point that out over and over again. It's, it's this pointing forward. We in the Assemblies of God, most evangelicals today take what we call a futurist view of the book of Revelation. Yes, there were things, as we're going to see in just a moment, that were real-time. Jesus is speaking to seven real churches in that day, but there are messages to every believer and every local church since that day, okay? But there is so much of the book of Revelation that's looking to the last days, we know that because you compare it to the words that Jesus spoke, to, that Daniel wrote, uh, Ezekiel wrote. There is just so, uh, there, there's just so much that fulfills. It's why I believe that the book of Revelation is the most important book in the Bible. That's my, that, that's my conviction because it's really God's wrap-up. This is where we see the fulfillment of Every Bible doctrine, every, every critical teaching of the Word of God is fulfilled and wrapped up in the book of Revelation. Now, let me just say one other thing before I show you a few pictures and we take a little bit of a trip here to those seven churches. I think what we will do, if this is okay with Pastor Jeff, and he may have slipped out. Pastor Jeff? Okay, I think he maybe slipped out to another part of the ministry. Uh, he will be back, and I'm sure, in just a few moments. But um, I'd like to do this. If you have a pressing question that has to do, would this be okay, Pastor Jeff, if we have a pressing question that's relevant to what we're studying in that moment, and you'd rather not wait to the end, because I will take, like we did last week, we spent another like 45 minutes for those that wanted to hang in here. We had a great time of discussion. But I sort of sense that um, maybe there's something that, a question that's burning in your heart, and I'll address that while we're going on, okay? We just can't get bogged down in any one particular verse, otherwise we're not going to get all the way through. Do you follow what I'm saying? But I also, um, look, we could spend hours, hours in every single one of these chapters. There's just so much to study. So I'd really, I want to keep it relevant to the questions that you might have. Okay, is that fair? All right, so if you do have a pressing question, just wave at me, and we'll stop and address that, at least briefly. Now, something that I want to show you, um, and this is going to be up on this screen, is this. So here is the Roman Empire. This is the end of the first century. And I think it's just important to get a little bit of the lay of the land. So here is Israel in that day. Is this going to work? Okay. It's not going to work on a TV screen, so let me just point out. So you've got Israel over here, and usually we think, oh, the vast majority of the Bible, it all took place here. Well, actually, in the New Testament, most of the New Testament took place in what we know as Turkey today and Greece, okay? Uh, all the travels of Paul, almost all of the travels of Paul were here in what's known as Asia Minor and into Greece. So our attention is going to be in this area, but you need to know that the Roman Empire was huge, the reach by the end of the first century in John's day. But our focus here is going to be on some churches, seven churches that are over in this area. So this is Western Turkey. Let me come back over here. And I want to show you something that is interesting. I alluded to it last week, and that is this. And it's the reason why I like to say that God was asking, Jesus was asking John to carry his mail for him. Okay, these are the seven churches. 
You can go to all seven of these areas. They have, uh, in some cases, different names today in the Turkish language. But you will read, and so this is all of chapters 2 and 3 are addressed to these seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, and they're in this order. Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, which today is Izmir. It's the second largest city in Turkey. I became very acquainted with Izmir when my GPS wasn't working, and I'm, it's a long story, but um, they don't like it any more than, than if you were in Manhattan and you were blocking in the middle of the intersection. Let's just put it that way. They were not happy with me, and they knew that I didn't belong there, and I didn't know where I was going. But uh, it's a busy, busy city today, but Smyrna, and then Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. One of the things, and I'm so sorry, let's get that back, please. All right, one of the things I want you to notice is like it's an inverted U. And I'm just hitting highlights again. The book will go into much more detail. There's so much here in the scriptures to point out. But what we do know is this. From the late first century, this was actually a Roman postal road. They literally would carry mail, okay, along this route. And I look at that and I say, that can't just be coincidence. I think there's a, to me, it's like Jesus is saying, you're going to write to these seven churches, take these messages. We know for a fact that when Domitian, he was the emperor at this time. Remember last week I told you that they tried to kill John? Anybody remember that? They tried to do what to him? boil him in oil. He miraculously climbs out of a vat of boiling oil. They say, what are we going to do with somebody that we can't kill? Maybe he's a phantom. We don't know. So they send him to Patmos. We know that for a fact. That's in the scripture as well. Patmos was like uh, an ancient Alcatraz, okay? Nobody escaped from Alcatraz, from, from uh, Patmos in that day. But we do know this. When Domitian died after 96 AD, that John was released from that banishment. And we do know for a fact that John came back to the city of Ephesus where he had been originally. That was his headquarters. And so he goes back to Ephesus. So if this is Patmos, and these are actually, even though Greece is all the way over here, these are still today Greek islands. They're beautiful, by the way, okay? If you ever have opportunity. But I stayed in Patmos here about nine days. And it's really not that far of a ferry trip uh, from the mainland of Turkey today. But he goes from Patmos and he returns to Ephesus. And there we know for a fact, until he died, probably in around the year 98 AD, and he would have been about 98 years of age, he took those messages that Jesus gave to him. And just like with Paul, he had colleagues, associates in ministry, and they distributed what we have as the book of Revelation to these seven churches and beyond. Now, I did did give this to you last week as well, and it's in the beginning of the notes. So let me just advance here very quickly. You'll note here that um, there are three common ways of reading and receiving. That's something to, to note here, all right? I hold to the second one, and that is this. Yes, they were real churches. Yes, they were historic churches, And it is uncanny, and I'm just going to give you examples of this for a few moments because we really do need to go on to chapters 4, 5, and 6. But Jesus is is speaking to them in ways that they it hits home. They would have understood. 
And it's like, you know, uh, your, your pastor, no doubt, will give illustrations sometimes and object lessons and so on, so that it's, it's like, oh, now I'm getting it, okay? That abstract, now it's concrete. Now I see it in my world, okay? Jesus was doing that, and I want to show you this. He knew how to relate the message to them. So these were real churches, but some of the language that's used there, and I'll point this out just a little bit as well, tells me he wasn't just speaking to the church in that day. He's speaking to anybody that has an ear to hear. So in other words, that number seven, which is a number of perfection and completion to the Jewish mind, it was the way the Lord is choosing Seven churches that represent the good, bad, and the ugly of every local church from then to now. Whether it's the Philadelphian church where the Lord had nothing bad to say about them. Everything was commending. You know, they're doing so well. There's blessing coming to you. To the Laodicean church, and he said, you're making me sick. I want to throw up. You have the whole scope. And so I believe that these are real churches. And I just want to show you a few of the pictures here so you can get this sense. Um, Let me do this, all right? And I know this is not technically maybe not the best way to do this, but um, let me just take you through. So here is in the city of Ephesus. This would have been, and let's let's just do this. Let's read a little bit. Let's get right into the text. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel, remember that doesn't just mean an angel created with wings. It can be that, but angelos meant a messenger. I happen to think that these were the pastors or the bishops of the church, and John brings it to that leader of the local church. And to to that messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, tell him these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at last. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He also, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now note that for a moment. He doesn't say, let him hear what I'm saying to the church in Ephesus. He speaks with a plural here, to the churches. What he's saying to one church, this is a message for everybody who will listen in all churches. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, Having read that, let me just give you just a little bit of a tour. And these are some of the pictures that I took. And so if you go to the city of Ephesus, to the ruins, you have to know that in that day, this was a city of several hundred thousands of people. These were big cities in that day. All right? So here is, I think this is the Temple of Hadrian. Um, They dedicated this to one of the 
one of the emperors in that day. Let me just point out a few things here. Um, This is called Domitian Square. So if he was the emperor in John's day, this is like the downtown area in Ephesus. I just want you to get a sense of this was the world. John, no doubt, stopped at this little, it's like a well. No doubt he would have been there and so on. He would have spent decades in this city. So this is like downtown area there. Um, Then this is fascinating here. Here is a, a, a... a, uh, now, this one I didn't take. <laughs> the next one I did take. But I, I didn't have a drone, and it didn't go up in a helicopter. But this is the amphitheater, and it seats about 35,000 people. What is interesting is this. This is a platform here, and it's almost complete. There is a trough. I don't know if you can see it. The trough is about two feet deep. It's meant to catch the blood of the people who are either gladiators Or, we know for a fact, thousands of Christians, thousands of Christians were murdered right here on that platform. And that trough was there to take the blood to run it out of the amphitheater. So you can get this sense of what this would have been like, that 35,000 people were cheering the death of Christians in that day. Um, The next is is a picture. It gives you a little bit of the size and the dimensions of... um, This is a picture that I took from sitting up at the top of that theater. And gives you another, another little view. Down here, by the way, is the Agora, which would have been like uh, the mall. You just walk through this, and there are shops. Agora is another word for like shops, a marketplace kind of a situation. So you get that kind of a picture. Um, here is a marble road. And again, I just want you to get a sense. There are miles of these and you can drive a car on these today, okay? If you can picture with me uh, Roman um, chariots coming up and down these roads. Um, but, but still to this day, you've got miles of roads like this, okay? Um, so you get a real sense of what it would have been like in that day. Let me give you, here's the library. You're going to go down to the library. This is the front of the library. They had statutes But you go inside and you can see all the areas where there are niches, where they would have scrolls. So this is the public library in that day. I just wanted you to get a sense. I want you to make a connection that when we read this, this was a real world. This was a real city and a church that was suffering greatly in this city. Now, let me give you something else very, very quickly here. And this you will have, yes, I want you to, to look, and I believe this is page 117. If you look, at, if you have the textbook, is it okay to call it a textbook? If you have Conquest and Glory, let me get the exact page for you. It's page 111. On page 111 is the same chart. And I just, I, I want you, and, and my goal here and just as quickly as we can, is to give an overview so that when you read these seven letters, you'll be able to navigate this a little bit better. What this chart does is show you, now we've just read this letter to the Ephesian church. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Most of these seven letters have three major components to them. And 
look for this when you're reading. And again, if you want to do verse-by-verse study, the notes that I'm giving you, that can help you. If you want to drill down even more, the, the conquest and glory can help you. But here in Af- is affirmation encouragement. He's affirming. I, I'm blessed to see. Jesus is saying, you're, you're doing so well. You're going on in your faith in me and so on. And you have that. But then, in almost all the cases, you have correction and warning. So look with me here. I just want you to get a a sense of navigating through. You've got this. I I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You're you're just putting it all on the line. And and you don't even, you know, you you don't put up with with some of the the false teachings. And there are those who are big shots and they call themselves apostles, but I haven't commissioned them. And he's commending them. You're doing so well. But then he says, and this is where you get correction and warning. Look at verses 4 and 5. I hold this against you. You've forsaken or lost your first love. Every time I read that, I'm like, Lord, oh, help me, Lord, never to be at that place. I don't want to do that. I preached a message some, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, Lord, uh, what was it? No, no holy smoke, give us holy fire. I think that was the, something along that line. Here's a church. You go to Acts chapter 19, you see the Ephesian church. They are revived. They're speaking in other tongues. You've got an incredible revival going on in the church in Ephesus. One generation later, you've lost your first love. Do you see how that, what was so true of a real church in that day, that principle has been found for 2,000 years since? 1900 years since how many churches were birthed in fire how many individuals will say oh back in the day i you know gave jesus my heart i was baptized in the holy spirit yeah but what about today is there a living relationship today are we just you know going through the motions have we have we lost have we lost our heart for the things of god so i want to point this out because here you have correction and warning but and and and, and just look at the parallel there are some of the churches, so look at, look, at, um, look at Smyrna, plenty of affirmation, no correction and warning. And we know that the church in Smyrna, they put it all in the line. They served God. They were under heavy, heavy persecution. We know this from history, but the Lord had nothing negative to say concerning them. But when you go down to, let's look at Sardis, Sardis and I can show you a few pictures. I just have to watch her time. I, I'm going to show you a few pictures yet. I think of, uh, of maybe Laodicea. Um, but, but Sardis, there was nothing good to say. Here's an exception. And, and, and there, there's just nothing that commends them, that affirms them. Jesus had to go, go right to, when you're reading about the church of Sardis, right to rebuke. He brings strong rebuke to them. And Philadelphia, just the opposite. Philadelphia, plenty to say in honoring them and commending you're doing so well, Philadelphia, and not one word negative to them. On the other hand, Laodicea, and I I do want to read a little bit about Laodicea. Here, Jesus has nothing good to say about them, and yet strong rebuke. Do Do you follow this? This chart could help you to understand where they had broken the heart of the Lord or if they were serving faithfully through those first decades of the church. But what I do want to show you is this as well. Look at this column, blessing and promise. So look at the blessing and promise for Ephesus. To him who overcomes, 
I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We had a question along this line last week. And he's saying, I am going to restore what you were cut off from because of your sin. I couldn't put my seal of approval upon your rebellion against me. I'm not going to. You have no part of me if you're going to live with these rotten fruits. You know. And so we were cut off in the Garden of Eden from the tree of life. No, I'm going to restore that to you forever and ever. And the Lord Jesus becomes that restoration of the tree of life. He himself is that life. But you will see blessing like this to every one of the seven churches. And it's something I want to point out to you. The Lord holds out hope. He believes that if we will respond to his voice, and that's why we, you know, it's never our part to give up on anybody, whether in prayer or to speak, show them the love of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to show you something in just a a moment about the church in Laodicea, where the Lord starts out, you're making me sick, but it's to that church that he has some precious words to say. And so I just want you to be encouraged in this, that he speaks blessing and promise to every single one of these churches in that day. I'll just give you this as well, and you could do a whole study on this in itself, but to every one of the churches, Jesus introduces himself in a unique way, and there's so much to learn just about Jesus there. So if you take chapter 2 again and verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars. So he has the, I believe it's the ministers of the church representing the churches in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands. I said last week, he's like the great high priest. He's checking every one of the oil lamps, wants to make sure that we're working, we're moving in the spirit of God, okay? But you have, you have an introduction to Jesus in every one of these seven churches, Go down to Smyrna for a moment in verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. We learned something more about Jesus. Or the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So, in other words, there's so much wealth to learn just of who Jesus is. And then, finally, there are promises, just like we have here. But I've given you in this column... Uh, these the promises that God has given. So let me do this. Let me um, because there you you have the detailed notes or in the book, but let me just point something out here. Go to go to uh, uh, chapter two and verse seven, where I said to him who overcomes. It's a verb here. Um, it's a inflection of the verb nakao. Um, if you buy Nike sneakers, Nike comes from this word. Uh, Nakao meant to overcome, to be a victor. That's why they give you Nike sneakers, because they want you to, to, to believe that you're a winner. If you put on our sneakers, you're a winner, okay? But it comes from this, Nakao. You are an overcomer. But how do you overcome? Well, remember, John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, this is how we overcome. These are those who overcome, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. That's how you overcome this world. But there are beautiful promises to those who overcome. Now, just giving you an overview. um, Let me do this yet. Because I I just thought it might might be good for us to get a sense of some of these places. Um... Let me say a word here about Pergamum. Um, 
and I'll just give here a few pictures. This is, this is a tunnel in an area called the Asclepion. Okay, the Asclepion was an ancient, it's one of the early hospitals. But I'm going to tell you something about the Asclepion in that day. Um, and right next to these tunnels are, it's like a field, and you can find everything from uh, baths, because they believe that this, the water was holy, or not holy like we think, but sacred from the gods, and if you, you went into this water, it would bring healing to you. Um, but I, I want you to get this sense when he speaks to Pergamum. Let's just read a little bit here in chapter 2 and... Um, Let's go to verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Now, what could that mean, where Satan has his throne? So um, here's the Asclepion. This is down in the valley, but let me just give you another picture. I wanna, uh, what I want to do for a moment is show you that Jesus was relating to situations, visuals that they could identify with. So let me give you, uh, let's see, here's, here is a theater. Nope. Okay, now this is, all right, this will help us just a little bit. This is a theater down in the village, uh, down in the lower area of Pergamum. Everything over in this area is that Asclepion, okay? There was a god in that day, the god of healing, the god of medicine, because this is where the idea of medicines and hospitals uh, derive from. Pergamum was one of those first areas. I remember I was in Germany, and they had a hospital that they called the Asclepion. That was the name of it. It was like a clinic they called the Asclepion. Have you ever, by the way, and I'm sure you have, you've gone to uh, maybe a pharmacy, and you remember seeing a staff with snakes on it, one or two snakes? Have you ever wondered what that's all about? That comes directly from Pergamum. Because in that day, this is what you would do. If you were ill, you went to the Asclepion. And the god Asclepius this was the goal, would meet with you. And you would go into dormitories, and that the dormitories were over in this area, okay? And you would sleep. It's a, the dormitory comes from that word for sleeping. You would sleep there. And depending upon the dreams that you had, you would tell the prophets or the prophetesses in the morning who served the goddess Sclepion what you dreamt, and they would interpret it. And sometimes it was physical exercise. Sometimes it was going to the ritual baths. Sometimes it was certain herbs and so on, but if the snakes crawled over you during the night, and they would watch for that, they were not venomous snakes, but you would sleep on floors and dormitories, and if the snakes chose to crawl over you, it was a sign that Asclepius was with you and would bring healing to you. That's why today you'll see these serpents. It goes all the way back to that day, okay? Um, that is supposed to be a good omen for you if the snakes would crawl over you. Do you get the picture of why we need to get a little bit of the backstory? This is happening down in the village, down in the bottom. But what does Jesus mean when he said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Just up this area, you begin to see over here, there's a hill. This is called the Acropolis. And most of the cities in that day were built next to a hill. So let me give you, I'm sorry, there's a lot, a lot here to show you. So here is, 
Uh, that's not the one. I'm, okay, Pergamum. My apology. Uh, the theater, Pergamum Theater. Wrong one. Well, you do get the Acropolis there. Forgive me. This is what I'm looking for. All right. Built into the side of the hill is another theater. Okay. But on the top of this hill, as a matter of fact, it would be right over here. You don't see it there today because it's been moved. In Berlin, there is a museum. And there in the museum is what is known, and they've rebuilt it. They took the stones and what wasn't there, they have rebuilt it, and you can go to the throne of Zeus. It is huge up at the top, and we know. So you can today, real time, you can go to Berlin, to the Berlin Museum, and see what was right around the corner over here, overlooking the whole city of Pergamum, was the throne of Zeus, who is known as the father of the gods. And Jesus said, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne, and he's looking over your city. And you have kept faith in me, even when all that demonic is going on. So it reminds me of Paul speaking on Mars Hill in the city of Athens. When you're there at the Parthenon, when you're there and you see where Mars Hill is, and you're looking and saying, Mars Hill is just like 20 feet high, and Paul is, Paul is preaching there, but he's in the shadow of all of this heathen paganism and everything. And it's like, Lord, there's nothing really new under the sun. Maybe over this city and other cities, you don't have temples and, and you know, things that are, you know, that are visuals of, you know, statutes, although it's becoming, you know, more and more known, statues of Satan and this thing and that. But do we not have these strongholds of the enemy? Of course we do. They just don't look the same as they did in that day. But I, I just wanted to give you this idea of how with every single one of these seven letters, there is something that Jesus says that relates directly to what the people would understand, the believers in that day would understand. There are other pictures. I can show them later to you. But let me take you to, let's do this. Um, Let me just read something here concerning Philadelphia. Let's go to that. Go with me to chapter 3, please. So let's go to the Church of Philadelphia. If you remember from the chart that I showed you a few moments ago on page 111 in the book, Jesus had nothing bad to say about Philadelphia. Philadelphia, phileo, it's a word that literally means city of brotherly love. Um, I happen to be pastoring a church now on the west side of Philadelphia. I think it's probably more like the city of brotherly shove, not love. But anyway, that's okay. But that's literally what the Philadelphia means, city of brotherly, phileo, city of brotherly love. Um, there's a long story behind that. I give you some of the notes concerning Philadelphia, how that city um, was, was named and so on. But what's so beautiful is this, and let's just read a little bit about Philadelphia. Listen, we want our churches to be like the Philadelphian church. Okay, this was one that Jesus commended. These are the words, I'm in verse 7. These are the words of him, chapter 3, verse 7, who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Isn't it interesting, and I have it in the book. You'll see the pictures right in the center of the book for Philadelphia. There's very, very little of the ruins of ancient Philadelphia 
in the city of Philadelphia today. As a matter of fact, it goes by a different name. But the one thing that remains is this. There are four huge um, pillars, and they served as a gateway, okay? And so, and those were there in that day. Isn't it amazing that all that remains from Philadelphia are the gateways? It was believed, and this is why they built it. The Romans built it in that day because it was to be a gateway for the Roman culture. When you come into our city through these huge gates, okay, and the, the archways are still there, those pillars and part of the arches are still there as a reminder. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm the one who opens doors for people that nobody can close. And I'll close doors that no man can open. In other words, they knew and they were prideful of that. We've got doors here and it opens to the, to the Roman culture. And so that was what the city was known for, open doors. And Jesus says, no, I'm the one who opens doors. You follow what I'm saying? Jesus spoke their language is what I'm getting at. But there's something else I want to show you as we just move a little bit further. Um, I, I, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Now, I don't think that means little in quality. I just think it means there were not that many believers in this city. Okay, but you're still strong. Yet you have kept my word and have not, and have not uh, denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. So these would have been Jewish people who rejected the Lord Jesus, but they're liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I have some notes, you know, here. It's sort of like Joseph's brothers coming back. Jesus is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vindicate you, okay? Or Job's friends, his comforters, okay, that had really no comfort. They're going to come back and ask you to pray for them, okay? It's sort of like that. You've been holding on. Even though you're just a handful of believers, you've stayed strong. I will turn the tables, and they will come and ask you to pray for them. But follow what he says next. Verse 10 is very, very important to us. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live, uh, who, who live on the earth. Now, let me just, with, um, i got to get the right clicker here. If you go to chapter 3, these notes. So go to, where are we here? Okay. Look at this, and you have this at the bottom of page 13. Um, I will also keep, that means carefully guard over you from the hour of trial. This was, there was no hour of trial that came to the whole world in that day. I believe that this is one of those messages. Yes, it encouraged them in that day, but Jesus is speaking to what the book of Revelation, the rest of the book of Revelation would point out. And that is that there is coming a trial over the whole earth, the whole world, and is going to test the inhabitants. Look at this. This is a phrase that you will find over and over again in the book of Revelation, and I think that's why Jesus is making this very clear. I told you last week that when the tribulation takes place, and I do not believe that we've entered the tribulation, I happen to believe, real time, I believe we're in the beginning of sorrows right now. But when that tribulation starts, I believe that it is going to be the most horrendous time on planet Earth. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 24 and said that this is a day, it's never been this bad, it will never be this bad again. 
And Jesus is speaking to the Jewish nation at that point. And I'm like, Lord, this is going to be worse than Hitler's Germany because you said it's worse than it ever had been before and will never be that bad again. And indeed, that's what the scriptures show us. But this is not just going to be something in Israel. This is going to be something that fills the entire earth. There's coming a trial, an hour of trial, to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The major purpose on God's part for sending the tribulation is his wrath against sin. You will see two Greek words in the, in the book of Revelation ten times. Jesus speaks of this, that I'm going to pour out my wrath on planet earth. And he uses, John uses this phrase, the inhabitants of the earth. Look at all the different references. What it means is those on planet earth who refuse to repent. As a matter of fact, you keep reading, and we're going to get into this Next week, we'll start with the trumpet judgments. When you especially get to the bowl judgments after that, it says, and they curse the God of heaven. Instead of repenting, they just got more hard-hearted and said, how dare you do this to us? But this is the key. Yes, we're going to see as we move ahead, especially chapter 11. Yes, Jesus is dealing with the nation of Israel. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, seven years Yes, this is a time when the Antichrist and the Babylon world spirit rises up like never before. It is the time of a clenched fist in the face of God like no other time in human history. Jesus said it's the end, the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. But on God's part, why are those seven years coming? Because Jesus has had the Father, and it it says the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, they've had it. They're drawing a line. This is it. It's like Genesis in chapter 6. I will not contend with humanity anymore. They have now crossed a line. Now it's wrath. This is part of the reason why I believe, and I strongly believe, and I've taken flack for it. Some of you have as well. Um, I don't believe that the tribulation is a time where God intends, oh, I I need to discipline my church. I need them to get stronger. That's happening right now. There is more, two to 300,000 people will die this year for their faith in Jesus. There's more persecution right now than ever before in world history, including John's day. That chastening is going on right now. That purifying of the church, absolutely. I don't think that's the major purpose. Will there be persecution? Absolutely. You know why? Because some of you have relatives that once you're gone in the rapture, they're going to say, whoa, they told me about this. You know what? I pray and I believe that many, many of them will come to know the Lord as Savior. I believe that. <laughs> Pastor Fogel, remember um, at Calvary Temple, uh, this, I remember coming to the church and I followed Pastor Fogel as the, the pastor there at Calvary Temple. There was a frame and it, it, it had a Bible in it, didn't it? And it said, in case of rapture, break this. It had glass and break this in case of, remember that? I'll never forget that. If, you're, if you are here and we're all gone, break this glass. There's a Bible inside. Read this. That was the message. I love that. That was classic. Okay? But I believe that there are going to be many who come to know the Lord. Now, we'll see this in the book of Revelation. They will pay the ultimate price. There will be souls under the altar, tribulation saints. 
But I also believe, and I'm going to get to this question then in just a moment, but look what he says, because this is so important. I will keep you. Since you kept my command to endure patiently, you have been faithful to me. You were winners. You were nakao. You were the victors. You overcome through faith. You're not renouncing your faith. I'm going to keep carefully guard over you from, and that word from, and I don't, uh, yes, I do have it here. Promise to keep believers from, ek. It's a little word in the Greek language. Ek is how we would write it in English. It looks very, very similar to the Greek letters, but ek means out of. He doesn't say, listen, I do believe that Jesus takes us through many trials, but when it comes to his wrath, this is how I look at this. Jesus took my wrath on the crosses already. He bore my wrath to the cross. This is not time in the, in the tribulation for chastening and making Christians stronger. Yes, that will happen, but that's not the major intention of the, uh, of the seven-year tribulation. It is pouring out wrath upon those who have rejected the only sacrifice for sins that there is. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says that, and it's in the context of the return of the Lord Jesus, by the way. 1 Thessalonians 5 9 says, and we are not appointed to wrath. I believe that God will take us to be with him in the air. This is one of those strong verses. Now, there are other teachings, and and there's um, in what's known as um, WordQuest, uh, and I can give this to, to Pastor Jeff if any of you want this. But in WordQuest, there are several pages where I just enumerate reasons, biblical reasons why I believe that the church will be raptured before. So we are pre-trib. We're raptured. We go to be with the Lord. And by the way, the word rapture actually is in the Bible, not the English Bible. It is, it is a word out of the Latin Bible, raptus. We get the word rapture. But when you see, when you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll be caught up to be with him in the air. The Greek word is translated into Latin, wrapped us, and we get the word rapture. That's what it means, to be caught up. We're going to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. We're not going to face that wrath that God has intended upon the inhabitants of the earth. I will keep you out of that. It's a strong passage here. I wanted you to see this. Sister, was there a question then? Yes. Yeah, there are some in the United States. Here, you know, it's like the book of Hebrews. You have not yet resisted unto blood. Some have. I guarantee you that the media is not going to pick up. Although there are church shootings that we don't hear of, there are a lot of church shootings. There are a lot that's happening against Christians. Yes, bloodshed. Most of the time in the United States, it's losing jobs. It's losing, you know, favor. It's minuscule compared um, there are, if you go to websites like The Voice of the Martyrs, you will find there the Sudan, still to this day, communist China, North Korea. There is a list of major, you, some communist nations, although we don't get much information of the communist nations, but it's primarily in Muslim nations. I was just in, uh, this is being broadcast, so I can't say. All right, there's, I was in a closed country. I took a group uh, of young people in the month of May. It was two days after graduation. We went to a closed country, a Muslim country, okay? Um, One of the first fruit out of years of missionary work there, one of the first fruit, a young man, his English name is Nick. That's not his real name, but he went by Nick. 
when his wife began to show interest in the gospel because he said, I love you, but you need to know I will follow Jesus. And this was a young man who had been studying to be an imam, okay, uh, in that country, all right? He gives his heart to the Lord. His wife, who's pregnant, begins to show interest. They first took his wife and beat her, and she lost the baby. Then they took her again, and they never found her again. She was murdered by the family, okay? They call them honor killings. This is happening all the time. We just got word from the missionaries, because there's a private feed, that he was taken captive by his family, and this has happened numerous times. A lot of people went to prayer. He was rescued. He was able to escape, and the missionaries found him and took him to safety. This is going on all the time. It's primarily in Muslim nations today, um, but also in some communist nations and again, Voice of the Martyrs estimates between two and 300,000 people every year. That's just that we know are killed. We're talking millions are maimed, beaten, burned, on and on and on. Yes, it is happening today. Brother? I think it is to a certain degree. But again, you know that the media is not going to pick up on that. Yeah. So let me take you yet. And I don't even want to look at the time, but go with me, please, to Laodicea. I, 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 I need to point this out. In Laodicea, go to verse 14, chapter 3 and verse 14. And again, you have the notes here. So if you will advance, if you go to pages 14 and 15, look, just, and I'll, I'll just follow with the, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. city is still there today. Laodicea is still there today. It's in uh, Asia Minor. It's not that far from Philadelphia. Um, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. So I go into some of the details of those words for sake of time. Study this on your own. And again, what you have here is, it, it, I'm just hitting highlights. If you want to drill down deeper, the, 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 the book can help you with that. By the way, the book is not just like academic things, word studies. Every single passage um, it, this is chapters 1 through 7 covered in the book, also has what I would share as a pastor, more inspiration. I call it life application. So it's not just Bible insights, uh, biblical insights. It's also life application that I hope would be encouraging to you because as much as there's detail and there's prophecy, there is great encouragement in the book of Revelation as well. But look what he says here. And have you ever wondered what he meant by this? And I, I, one more time, I want to emphasize, when people would receive this letter in their hometown, can you imagine if you're in the church in Laodicea, and John, who is an elder, he's like 90, 96 years of age, when, he, when he's let go, and he comes back to his home city, and they have a big party and everything, oh, by the way, I've got a message for you from Jesus. And he brings this, and the, and the pastor brings this letter and reads it and begins to read. And this is what the pastor says on Sunday morning, and they wouldn't have had a church building in that day. They're, they're probably sitting in a home somewhere large enough. And these are the words that the pastor would be reading. Jesus spoke to Elder John, and this is what he said to our church. So because you, I, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either warm or the other. Do you think that God wants anybody to be cold towards him? No. And people have debated, what does this mean? I wish you either hold, hot or cold. Maybe some people say, just, you know, one or the other. Go to heaven or hell, just do something with it, okay? I mean, is that really what Jesus is? That's not what he's saying. What you have to understand, and this is why it's important to study the word and drill down, and you can do the same thing, okay? We know this, Laodicea didn't have its own water source. 
So they're dependent upon two cities nearby to bring water. And there is an aqueduct, as a matter of fact, so here it is. Let me give you this picture. Here's part of the aqueduct. This is actually right outside of Laodicea. You can go there. There are different sections of a Roman aqueduct, so there'd be pipes that would be carrying, carrying water up on top, and then it would slope down into the city, and hot water would come from a city called Heropolis. It's only a few miles down the road. To this day, if you keyword Heropolis, People go there by the thousands to the hot springs. They sit in warm, natural baths. And it's still to this day very popular that out of the earth, geothermal, hot water was brought by aqueducts into Laodicea. If you want hot water, you just go to the, to the pipe that's coming from Hierapolis. And Jesus is saying, that's a great benefit. I wish that you were like hot water. What about the cold water? I wish you were either cold or hot. Cold water came from Colossae. Colossae is where we get the book of Colossians. Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Colossae had cold, fresh water that they would bring in by another aqueduct from the other direction. And so they've got cold water from one aqueduct, hot water from another aqueduct, But think about it. If you're traveling, you're taking water for a few miles into a city, depending upon what season of the year, by the time it gets to the city, it's what? Lukewarm. It's it's tepid. It's, it's It's not good. But let me show you something else. So here's another picture. I just, I, I need you to get the, the understanding that this is real time. Here is a pipe in Laodicea that is still there, and there are all kinds of pipes like this. But scientists have analyzed the residual, the minerals that built up over time that was being carried by the water, and you know what they found? After the buildup of those minerals, those minerals will make you sick to your stomach. You would be drinking lukewarm water that would make you throw up. The only time in the entire New Testament that the word for vomit is used, is right here. And Jesus chooses to give John this word one time in the New Testament. And he says this, I know your deeds, <laughs> um, you're neither cold nor hot. There's no benefit. You're going through religious motions. They knew hot water, they knew cold water, there was benefit. Your lives, there's no benefit to the things of God because you are lukewarm. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out. It's the word for, uh, there it is. I'm going to vomit you. You know what? Hmm. You know what the Greek word means? It means vomit. It's not a pretty picture. Jesus says, you're making me sick. Now, can you imagine on Sunday morning, that the pastor, <laughs> Pastor Jeff, can you imagine? Oh, we got a word from the Lord this morning. He says we're making him sick to his stomach. He's going to throw us up. And that can be very unsettling, of course. Like, I mean, spiritually, emotionally, what do we do? Should I just give up? And then the pastor keeps reading. And he reads what Jesus says through John Let me just go further. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth. Oh, they were one of the biggest banking centers in all of the Roman Empire in that day. They were wealthy people. You say, and see, the church was replicated. They were reflecting the world. 
to, uh, I remember, oh, I tell a lot of stories, I've got to be careful. The morning that my wife was in labor for Ashley, Pastor Fogel knows Ashley, and, and now she's the pastor's wife, but Ashley was about to be born, and, and it was going to be a few hours. Kim had just started labor. It's a Sunday morning. I turn on the television, and it's somebody out of California preaching a message, and I'm telling you, I am not lying before the Lord. This is, this is what he said. He said, now we need to go on in our faith. We already understand the blood of Jesus, the cross. We understand that. But real Christianity, he said, what really measures our faith is not those things. Those are the, he said, those are the basics. If you really want to know where you are with God, it's all about your money. That's exactly how he said it. He said, it's all about your money. He said, that's the measure of your faith. And I am not exaggerating because I remember it to this day. I'm sitting there and I'm upset. My wife's about to give birth. It should be a joyous time, but I'm upset with what I'm hearing. The church was taking this and saying it's all about, it's all about money, the blessing of the Lord. And it's, listen, I believe God wants to bless us. I believe, you know, there is incredible blessing. I believe in biblical prosperity. He will, he will give you all you need for the journey but never does the word of God condone greed. And that's where these people were. And he said, you're boasting in your riches. You know what? You did not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel, you to, for, uh, I, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. You want to know what wealth is? And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Laodicea was known as the center for eye medicine. In the first century, they invented out of a certain mineral compound a salve that would bring ointment. They put it into an ointment, a salve, and they would apply it to the eye and it would bring healing. And Jesus is saying, you can tell me all about your eyes being healed with your salve. I'm telling you, I will heal your eyes. I need to open your eyes. Do you see how Jesus is reading their mail? They would have taken every word and said, oh, he knows exactly. How did John know all of that? Jesus is reading our mail. But then watch what he says next. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. To most of the churches of the seven, he tells them to repent. I want to point something out, and this is too important to skip over. The church that he speaks the strongest rebuke to. Have you ever been corrected by the Lord? Of course we have. There have been times where I felt such correction from the Lord. And the Lord took me into the woodshed kind of a thing, okay? Sometimes my flesh, that's not fair. It's just not. Um, Hopefully I get the lesson and the Lord speaks to my heart. But the Lord, he loves those who he chastens and he chastens those who he loves. But this is what, this this blows me away. The church that he just said, and he uses this unique word, you make me want to throw up. He speaks to them the most intimate message. Listen to this. This is why we have such a gospel. It's always about grace. And don't you ever, ever write anybody off. 
that is not your place. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. And by the way, yes, we are to make judgments, righteous judgments, but there are two different words in the Greek language in the New Testament for judgment. One is to investigate, fruit inspect. If, if you can bless your brother, your sister, bring something to them and say, I, I love you, and because I love you, I want to point something out, and, and I'm, I'm burdened for your life. That's a world of difference from going to them and saying, you're going to hell. That's it. I, you, I'm writing you off. And that's the word crino, and that's what Jesus said. You don't do that. Judge not, or else it's going to come back to you. You'll be judged. Paul says, I don't even do that myself. I have no right to write anybody off. Why? Because here's the church, the quintessential for 2,000 years of church history. We think the Laodicean church, they've crossed a line. That's it. No hope. And Jesus says to them, here I am. (laughs) I haven't gone anywhere. I've got your pastor in my right hand, hand of favor and mercy and power. I haven't left. But you have locked me outside the door. So I'm still here at the door. Can you imagine as they're sitting in the house and they're hearing the pastor read these words and Jesus said, oh, by the way, I'm right outside the doorway and I'm knocking at your door. I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, now I go into some detail in that. It's all about grace. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God and his mercy There's a whole other direction we can go with this. But you know what? God and his sovereignty still, it is not a closed system. God could have chosen and said, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven. Nothing you can do. You're going to heaven. Even if you wanted to go to hell, you have to go to heaven. That's not how God did this. He could have. There are hundreds of if passages in the Bible. If you respond to me, this is what I would do. If you reject me, this is what I would do. He still brings it to a choice that we make. And he says to this church, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. In other words, I want you as much as you'll want me. I want your company. As a matter of fact, and this is why it's so important to drill down, and you can do these word studies. There are, there are incredible you know, sites, uh, uh, um, uh, websites that can help you to do. One of them is called Blue Letter Bible, just simply blue letter, like a hyperlink. Blue Letter Bible. It will help you to do word studies. You can drill down and see the wealth, the meaning behind these words. Because when Jesus says... I'm going to eat with him. I think I have it in here. Uh, Eat. It's not just the, it's uh, dapnon. It is, we're going to have the evening meal. It wasn't the word for lunch. Because it's in the middle of the day you have lunch. It's a very quick, it's a fast food thing. Because you got to get back in the fields. The dapnon was this. Everybody stops at the end of the day. And everybody just sits there, and your meal could be hours long because it's not about the food. It's about the people that you're with. And Jesus says, we're not going to rush this. If you'll open that door, I'm going to come in, and I want to spend time with you. I'll spend all night with you. We'll keep talking, and I'll hold you and hug you and minister to your heart until the sun comes up in the morning. And this is the church that Jesus said, you just made me sick. And now he says to you, how I love to be with you. Do you follow the grace of God in this? So I I just felt as much as we need to already be like in chapter 7, 
we, we need to understand the wealth that is here in chapters 2 and 3 in these seven letters. All right, I'll just stop there for a moment. Don't look at your clock. Don't, just don't. Okay, um, any quick questions? Any quick questions on, on, this, on these seven churches? Let's go to heaven real quick. Well, not real quick, but let's, let's, let's go to heaven. Chapter 4, chapter 4. Let's do this, chapter 4. And, um, all right, I got to bring up a picture here. Chapter 4, pictures. Because we start out, and I love this picture. John hears this in chapter 4 and verse 1. And if you go to the notes, it would be what? So, um, you can read most of this on your own. I'm going to hit highlights. Chapter 4, after this. What is that in the Greek language, metatauta? It's that phrase. I know it's a, I'm not asking you to memorize a Greek phrase. It's there for identification. When he says things that are still to come, it's metatauta. The next thing, things to come, what's next? That's the idea behind that phrase. And when you see that, you know there's a transition, and he's pointing to something next. So he says, after this, I looked. Now, after this, the first after this is like, after he gave me the seven, then something shifted. Now, I don't think that he got all 22 chapters that we have in one night. I think this is probably a period of weeks. Who knows how long he was in Patmos for two years. But in this, after Jesus gives him these seven messages, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice. And so you just get this idea, this, this door, and, he, he's, and this voice I have heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Remember chapter 1? Like a trumpet sound. Another time he said it's like a oceans, just many, many waters just churning in chapter 1. Now he says that voice is saying, come up here. And I will show you what must take place, meta tauta. There's another repetition of that phrase. This time, the meta tauta, the things to come, he says, I'm going to show you what's in the future. I want to give you a revelation. I am going to pull back the curtain on eternity, and I'm going to begin to show you things, John, that others have not seen before. Now, I'm going to hit highlights. I will show you at once I was in the spirit. Anytime you see that phrase, in the spirit, it means that he's carried by the Lord. He's in a vision. And there before me was a throne in heaven. Is it okay? I'm just going to read, and I'm going to hit highlights. Okay? I will not be long, but this is, this is too important. There before me was a throne in heaven. This is the third heaven. We had that question last week about the different heavens. To the Jewish mind, the third heaven was the throne room of God. He's in heaven. He's in that throne room. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. It's like mysterious. And the one, again, <laughs> there's one who's sitting. I can't even, it's just so, it, the one who's there who sat there, had the appearance. And let me just break this down a little bit of jasper. And the jasper is a, a, a word in the Greek language that can represent stones of different colors. 
but it all depends on how that individual would use it. We know from the way that, Paul, that John uses jasper, because you'll see it again in chapter 21, here he's referring to it like a diamond. Brilliant. It is like a crystal clear, brilliant diamond. That's this particular jasper. So he's looking at God the Father, and it's jasper and carnelian. So let me give you one lady's rendition. She painted this. This is a picture of what somebody felt that they saw in this passage. When I looked at the one who's on the throne, it was like this brilliance. Now, John has already said when he looked at Jesus, it was like the light beyond the sunlight. You can't even look at it as so. And here he's looking at God the Father, and he says it's like, he's like, but the carnelian is red. I, I have that here if you... Where, where are we? Carnelian. Um, some will say ruby. Some versions say carnelian, but we do know this. Carnelian has the appearance of a ruby red color. It is the stone that we call ruby today. So John is saying, when I looked at him, it was like a brilliant diamond. But a red, ruby red hue was coming through shining through, I believe forever and ever when you look at God the Father, you're going to remember the blood of Jesus. I believe that he is going to constantly forever remind us of how we got there. Some through the fire, some through the floods. We're all going to get there through the blood of Jesus forever and ever. But then he goes on. So you've got this, and and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircling the throne. Now, this is interesting because rainbow in the Greek language is iris. We get iris from it. Uh, and they call it the iris because it's round, but it's the Greek word for rainbow. And a rainbow is not just a little bow, half a, like an arc. If you're up in an airplane and you see a rainbow from the right angle, it's actually a whole circle. It's an iris. A rainbow is a full circle. And John says, I saw a circle around the one God the Father, and the circle, a rainbow here, this iris is different. It's not different colors. It's all emerald. You have to understand, remember, this is apocalyptic literature, which is in code form, and to the Jewish people, green, that emerald green spoke of something everlasting. I look at that and I say, Father, forever and ever, when I look at you, I'm remembering the oath of the covenant. To make a covenant in that day, you needed a promise and an oath. The promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The oath is, and I really mean business, I will lay down my own life for you. The blood of Christ. In our day, we use a wedding ring as a symbol. And in much of the world, they use a wedding ring as a symbol because it doesn't break. It's supposed to represent something that never ends. I think when I look at my father, I'm going to say, forever and ever, the green, there's a wedding ring around your throne that says you're married to me forever and ever. 
It is a constant reminder forever, I think John is saying, that through the blood of the Lord Jesus, he will never break his word towards us. He gives a promise and an oath, and that's what establishes an everlasting covenant. We go on just a little further. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Now, we could say so much there. I drilled down in the book. We, there, there's different thoughts on who these are. I don't think that they're angels. I think that they are representatives. My take, in short, because you can go different directions, I believe that 12, 12 is another number in the, Greek, in the, in the Hebrew mindset for an, is a number of completion. Very interesting that you do have 12s in the book of Revelation. You've got 12 foundations. You have 12 gates. 12 apostles are listed there. The 12 tribes of Israel are listed there. 12 is an important number in the book of Revelation. I think the 24 is 12 from the old covenant, 12 from the new covenant. It's God's way of saying these 24 elders who are leaders amongst God's people, they represent the people of God from all time before my throne. I, I, I think it's a view into eternity, and these are people in their glorified bodies who God has chosen to represent all of us. So watch what happens with these 24. Go on. They were dressed in white. That's a symbol. And had crowns of gold on their heads. Angels were dressed in white, but you'll never read about angels wearing crowns of gold in the scriptures. They don't wear crowns. Only Christians are given crowns to wear gold crowns and wearing white, the righteousness of the saints. And... It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. That's judgment. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. I already introduced that to you last week. There are not seven holy spirits. It's a number of completion. There are seven oil pots before the throne of God. Here in this rendition, you've got them here. All right, before. Seven is representing the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit being sent out from the presence of the Father. Interesting that Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1, 2, and 3 gives us a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit's anointing upon the Messiah that's coming. All right? Again, knit scripture with scripture. Let the scripture interpret scripture going on. And also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And I've got notes concerning that. Let me go on. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And the Greek language seems to indicate that here, 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 and here are four living creatures. These are zoon. It comes to the word zoe. A lot of times we say zoe life. It's zoe. And it's God's kind of life. It's ultimate life. It's life that is associated directly with God himself. These are creatures that live by by the life-giving power of the Lord. And he describes them, just very quickly, he describes these, seven, these, these four living creatures, these zoan, they were covered with eyes in front and in back. So in other words, they're doing the business of the Lord and they have a view that's unlimited. The first living creature was like a lion. Second was like an ox. Second, the third was like a man. And the fourth was like an eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes around. In other words, these wings represent, they can swiftly do the work of God sent out from his throne. His eyes, they see things. God has given them insight. What's so interesting is that all four of those faces 
are seen in the book of Ezekiel. You go to chapter 1 of Ezekiel, and he visits it a few times in the early chapters. But what's interesting, I think, is in chapter 11, and I point this out as we I'll advance to these notes, and you will see it here. In Ezekiel, it's, it's right in here. And I think that I gave you that, uh, I think it's chapter 11. Yes, up in here, right in here, you'll see this. And he recognizes, he says that he recognized that they were cherubim. That's right in here. In other words, when Ezekiel describes these living creatures in his vision with the same four faces. Now, it's interesting. John sees each one of the creatures as having one face with four different images. When Ezekiel saw them, he saw every one of them had all four faces. It probably because John is just describing one face. Who are these? Ezekiel says, and I think it's chapter 11, I have it in here. He says, I recognize that they were cherubim. Cherubim are the highest ranking angels in heaven. I believe that these are angels, but I believe that the living creatures, and this is so cool to me, I believe that God uses angels to, he commissions them, and they represent, and they do the work of the kingdom of God as he commissioned. I think that these four living creatures are representative of all of nature, all of the created world. I believe that it's God's way of saying, around my throne, all the created world, including human beings, they're bringing worship back to me. They're doing my work. It's very, very interesting that in the last day, I think God is allowing some scientists to see things that we, it took thousands of years of human history to see. Albert Einstein, who was a God-fearing man, was looking for what he called the theory of everything. What ties it all together? It's only recently that they they feel that they've discovered what they call the theory of everything, and that is this. At the sub-sub-sub-atomic level, the most basic um, within the material world, everything in the material world is made up of, it's called the string theory or M theory. Some of you may have studied this. Everything in the material world is made up of vibrating strings. I play the violin and the guitar, and I know this much. You vibrate a string, it plays music. I just thought it was interesting when I read this, and I began to study it more, and there's a lot in the scriptures that is being veri- uh, you know, verified now, even in science. Isn't it interesting that all of the created world, the way God can hear it, is bringing sound before his throne And I wonder if there's a connection with four living creatures that are constantly bringing worship, representing nature before the throne of God. All of the world, the created world, is bringing. That's a theory, okay? I'm not giving you that as doctrine, but that's a theory that I have because of the description that is there, that all of creation. Didn't Jesus say, if they stop praising me, the rocks will cry out? Let me finish up with this. And it says... The end of four, day and night. By the way, there's no night in heaven, but it was John's way of saying it just never stops, never stops. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne. So as soon as these four living creatures all around the throne begin to bow down and give glory to God, representing all of the created world as I see it, it says, 
Then the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. It's all about you, Jesus. We're given these crowns because we've honored the Lord in our lives. We stand before him in the bame of judgment, and there's reward. What are they going to bring before the Lord? Gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble that burns up. But if there is a gold crown every time, there are crescendos. I go into it because as you go into chapter 5 in the worship, and there's a lot of worship in the Revelation, worship never stops in heaven, but there are waves of worship. Pastor Folger, remember, we've seen it. Pentecostalism, I remember it growing up, Pilgrim Camp, Ridgewood, the Assemblies of God, just waves where you wait in the presence of the Lord, sometimes quiet, but then waves of glory would just build and crescendo, just wave after wave. That's what the Greek language seems to indicate. Worship never stops, but every once in a while, a holy angel gets blessed. And all, the, all of us, that's represented by these 24, we fall on our face before God and say, it's all about you, Jesus. So, Father, we'll officially just wrap up there. But, Lord, this is our hope. This is, this is our destiny, God. This is our home. Paul says our citizenship is not here. Not really. We're already seated with you in heavenly places, God. Help us not to get so satisfied here, Lord, that we forget where we really belong, where our heart really is. I pray that as we delve, and not just in this hour and a half we have, or hour and 15 minutes, Lord, as we, we take this, the, 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 we just read your word, Lord, on our own. I pray this week that you take us deep into your word and reveal great things by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I told you that I would just... Um, I need to honor uh, this, that it is time to officially dismiss.